0: Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome back to the Reformed Dissenters, the show where Reformed Christians dissent against popular ideas of culture by asserting a biblical worldview. I'm Bruce Johnson, joined by my brother Jacob Johnson, of course.
1: Hello everybody.
0: And today is Literature Wednesday. We are beginning a brand new book and we are breaking the past four months of tradition, gasp for shame, how dare we. We're starting a new book, Christian Nationalism by Stephen Wolfe. Uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism, actually, is what it's the the full title. And my goodness, if you can hear this, this is the sound of 445 pages slapping together. Um, (laughs) It's massive. It's huge. And it hurts to hold it. Uh, So buckle up. Uh, We released a calendar, um, a literature calendar on all of our social media pages. So uh, we announced this on Monday. But uh, just in case you missed it. You're gonna want to check that out, uh, especially since we highly, highly, highly encourage you read along with us. Because um, who doesn't want to, like, you know, learn from
1: books and read
0: books? And you know, you and were the just best way for that.
1: is to read it. Yes, absolutely. not just listen to us is to read it yourself. Yeah, that's the best way to learn. And
0: absolutely, um, and you know, you were just looking for that excuse to buy yet another book and put it on your bookshelf. So here it is. Here's your excuse. Now, now do it. Um, it's Bruce's so excuse. So that's, yeah, maybe, maybe a portion of the audience, my, my fellow, <laughs> fellow book, book people who have major problems with in that department. Um,
1: maybe two. So anyways,
0: yes. <laughs> Yay. Two people. Woo. Um, so this is going to be fun. We're going through the introduction and chapter one today. I'll be covering the introduction. Jake will graciously, he's agreed to take chapter one. Yes, we had to split these up, so we did double duty. We listened to it, the audiobook version, and then we went back and highlighted and pulled out quotes and did all the reading and stuff. Just listening to chapter one, I'm sorry, the introduction, just listening to the introduction was an hour long to listen to the audiobook.
1: (laughs) It was the same for Um, chapter one, an hour. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and then we went through and pulled out quotes, and so it's great there's a lot here um, we're very interested to get into this there's definitely there will be things we will disagree with this may be one of the most controversial books we've read on the show I'm not saying it's the most controversial book controversial book out there right now that's uh that can't be unfortunately topped uh, by the Bible itself but uh, if we were to name a third or fourth most controversial book maybe this would hit the list I don't know Um, but it's, it's up there, especially today. So, and it's for good reason. There are some things we disagree with having just read through introduction in chapter one. So we'll address those, but there are of course things that we think are really good and that he's phrased really well. And so we'll get into some of those as well. But before we do all of that, we have to do what we always do, which is talk about our verse of the week and Wednesday means that Jacob does that. So take it away, dude.
1: Yeah, and no, our verse this week is Psalm 47, verses 8, sorry, 6 through 8. And it says, Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Um, and my, my expression. Explanation? Not explanation. But what I want to bring out is through doing some research and just looking through some stuff to try and figure out what I was going to talk about, uh, I found something very interesting. Um, and I looked at the verse as a whole, like trying to figure out what the verse as a whole was trying to, to say. And, of course, what I got from it was... Um, that this verse is structured as a praise to God, right? This is, you know, literally stating the word praise five times throughout this entire verse. So I figured I would do a little word search in that general area and find glorify and what, and what the Bible had to say on glorifying God. And what I found was very interesting, not interesting as in new interesting, but interesting as in, we kind of knew this, but I didn't know there were so many verses speaking about it. Wow. But almost all of the verses, and I'm going to keep this quite short because I know Bruce and I have a lot to go through with the book. So try to keep this as short as I can. But almost all the verses I looked through, they all seemed to have something in common. And that is, in order to glorify God, we need to take action. God receives glory when we follow and apply his law to our life. Um, and so I'll give you a couple of verses because I don't have time to go through them. But, and I'll leave you with these verses to look at what I mean. Uh, John 14.13, John 15.8, 1 Corinthians 6.18-20, through 20, and 1 Corinthians 10.31. And there are multiple more if you uh, want them. But hopefully again, keeping it very, very short, hopefully that was good and you know, you got something from yeah. that from this
0: No, that's week. that's great. Action being attached to glorifying God is something that I think is a tremendous theme to pull out. Not something we like state directly whenever we talk about these mm-hmm. sorts of things, but we draw from them. Um and I think it's great that you stated that and that was what you pulled out of your research and from this verse. I mean, sing praises to God, sing praises. There's action there um, and that's how we bring glory. So mm-hmm. that's tremendous. Thank you, Jacob. That's great. Um, okay, so I'm going to take the next 10, 15 minutes because that's about all that I'll get to fairly divide this episode between the introduction, which is what I'll be covering and chapter one, which is what Jake will be covering and the outline of what I want to talk you about. Could,
1: next... You could go a little longer, by the way. Um... Okay. Okay. If you want.
0: Okay, sounds good. So if I give you like 10 minutes at the end, is that good? That's fine. Or 15 minutes? Okay, great. Something like that. Awesome. We will not have an issue where we're like, oh man, we're at a, we, well, we end a little early. We will not be ending early. <laughs> not no. today, no. my friend. Probably not for the duration of this book as we read it, because <laughs> there's aye, 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 so much. Um. So let's get started. I want to talk about um, what I found in this chapter or yeah, it feels like a chapter in this introduction. He starts out by laying out his his definition for Christian nationalism, how he defines it. And then he breaks down each chunk of that definition. And I think he does a really good job expounding on and not really leaving us with any questions of like, well, huh, what do you mean by that? He really goes into depth. <laughs> so again, this chapter is huge. I'm not going to cover he- like... Everything that's in it, I'll cover as much as I can, but um, go back and read this for yourself, especially if there's parts of this definition that are a little confusing. So, okay, okay here we go. Page nine, uh, his definition for Christian Christian national, nationalism, I can do words, <laughs> his definition <laughs> is this, quote, Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself Both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. And that's the end of his definition of Christian nationalism. And then the quote goes on. He says, The purpose of this book is to show that Christian nationalism, as defined, is just the ideal arrangement for Christians and something worth pursuing with determination and resolve. And that's again from page nine. So that's the definition. It's a lot of words, a little confusing, right? But we're going to go through chunk by chunk. And he does a much broader job of this um, and break down kind of what he's talking about. But the the first part that he addresses is the totality of national action. What does that mean, the totality of national action? One of the things that he he gave like an example of a soccer team, Um, and we can say that the team made a goal when in – Reality, it was the parts of the team working together as a whole that made the goal for the team, right? So the defense made the defense of their side while the offense passed the ball around, got it up the field, and then someone made the goal, right? But we say the team made the goal. So that's mm-hmm. him defining, okay, that's a product of the whole team is that goal that was made, right? So um, page 12, he said, quote, thus, a totality of action can be defined as a set of actions, that are interrelated such that their effect is a product of the whole, end quote. So basically that's what we were, what I was just getting at. Um, And that's the example that he used. So this was interesting. This next bit, um, page 15, this is a bit of a longer quote, but I think that it's, it's really worth delving into some of these. And Jake, I really want to get your thoughts on some of the things he brings up here, but page 15 quote, had Adam not fallen, the nations of his progeny would have ordained themselves to heavenly life. Thus, heavenly good is an end of the nation. Since the gospel is now the sole means to heavenly life, nations ought to order themselves to the gospel in the interest of their heavenly good. The specific difference between generic nationalism and Christian nationalism is that, for the latter, Christ is essential to obtaining the complete good. Pagan and secularist nations are true nations, but they are incomplete nations. Only the Christian nation is a complete nation. End quote. There's like four different things here. I <laughs> mm-hmm. don't even know where to start. Um, but the theme that in the introduction, and I think comes up in chapter one, when Jake starts to go into that in a few minutes, the theme that kept coming up was the idea of diversity and the fact that that was not something that was post-fall or that is post-fall, right? That a a diverse group of nations that all have their own social customs and all these different things was is something that was always going to be and that is not like after the fall now we get all these nations that are different i agree i think we both agree right on that front it's the application of that that's a little interesting he's going to get more into detail so i can't disagree with the application yet but for some of the some of the applications that he's made have been interesting. And I'll get into a quote a little bit later. So I'll I'll leave that up there on page 15. I just realized I wasn't going to table it for now. We'll come back to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to keep going because there's there's so much. (laughs) Um, All right. Next quote. Also, page 15 quote in Christ modifies earthly good as well the gospel adds no new principles of earthly life, but earthly life is restored because of sanctification, which is the infusion of Christ's holiness in us. Furthermore, all earthly goods ought to be ordered to Christ. Thus the totality of Christian national action orders the nation to procure the complete good in Christ, end quote. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, That's a little bit of a, I guess a more bulky way to say it, but I think it makes a lot of sense. What he's getting at here is that, the gospel actually allows earthly life to be sanctified, which is something we're talking about all the time, right? Culture is being sanctified through the gospel, just like humans are sanctified through people are sanctified individually through the gospel. So that I think that makes a lot of sense. The way he phrased it covers a lot of bases. I think this book is great for offering a very academic defense of Christian nationalism in the sense that We can back it up. Um, And he makes a very philosophical and academic uh, argument. It is called the case for Christian Mm -hmm. nationalism, after all, right? He's definitely outlining this very much like a judicial case. So he covers in that quote basically the idea of personal sanctification and cultural sanctification and that they're interconnected. They're very much the same. Um, So, yeah. So, uh, again, going back to that previous quote, one thing I just remembered I wanted to touch on briefly was that pagan and secular nations are true nations, but they are incomplete. Only the Christian nation is a complete one. Right. So there are there's such a thing as a nation that's, yeah, a true nation, but it's not full. Right. And so it's the same way with humans. I think there's that there's that connection again. Right. You are made in the image of God, but you're not complete without Christ. You're missing something. There's an aspect of your being that is missing because the Holy Spirit restraining you from your sins so that you can live a life before God that's honoring to him is the purpose, right? You living that life is the purpose of your life. So if you can't do that, if you're not doing that, you're missing an aspect of what it actually means to be human. Um, So anyways, okay, here we go. Uh, I'm going to move on to page 21, a little bit of a larger quote, but I think this gets to... Um, it starts to get us into some of the content of the book. The other thing he did in this introduction, besides breaking down his definition of Christian nationalism, is he went in to discuss and it gave an outline brief outline for each chapter. So over the next month, these are um some of the things that we're going to be talking about as we go into each chapter. so okay, here we go quote in chapters one and two, I discuss man in his three states, the state of integrity, the state of sin, and the state of redemption or restoration. I first argue that man has always had two ends, earthly and heavenly. Adam's original task, his dominion mandate, was to bring the earth to maturity, which served as the condition for eternal life. If Adam had not fallen, he and his progeny would have multiplied on the earth. They would have formed communities, for no man can live well when alone and when not in combination with others. These communities would have been distinct were separate nations because even unfallen men or man, uh, would have had natural limitations and been bound by geography, um, and other factors, end quote. So there's a lot there. (laughs) Um, but what he's, what he's getting at is in the first two chapters, he's talking a lot about the nature of man. He listed those three types, right? Man in his three states, integrity, sin, and redemption or restoration. And then he keeps bringing up this twofold aspect, um, has always had two ends, earthly and heavenly. So there's earthly good and heavenly good. Both of those um, aspects, earthly and heavenly good, are um, different. They're distinct, but they work together to produce a nation, right? And you can be Earthly directed, and be doing that in a Christian way. In addition to having heavenly uh, good and heavenly goals. So, anyways, he gets into that distinction a little bit later. But big part of this is that he's again making the case that nations would have formed regardless of whether or not the fall occurred. So there would have been separate distinct nations. Okay, Um, I don't have time to go into this quote from page twenty-two. Um, we already know that from page 23, he talks about page 23, he talks about how civil government is not an introduction of the fall, like civil government didn't come from the fall, um, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting, interesting perspective to take, because we would say from our reading, what we believe is civil government has two goals. One, it is the justice division of society right? So when a crime has been committed, they get involved, no sooner, right? They're not telling us how to build houses, not telling us how to build roads, not telling us how to structure our society. They are purely the justice division of society, right? Just one part. And then limited roles of defense, right? No standing army, uh, militias, there should be militias, there should be, um, um, people should be free to leave whenever they want to, you know, all these different Biblical principles that we've elaborated on tons of times in the past, right? So, this is all pretty, pretty hopefully, standard stuff. Um, but neither of those two things, from my perspective, maybe yours too, Jake, are pre fall. Like, why would you need defense for a nation pre fall? That's not warlike. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then also, why would you need a justice division pre fall? There's no sin. How can there be crime? So Mm -hmm. I think this is interesting. This might be our first point of disagreement. um, Because civil government, I don't know. This is something we need to study. But from my perspective, it seems like civil government is introduced by the fall. Um, And I think he brings up an interesting perspective here. He brings this up. He says that um, it would have been necessary for unfallen people to coordinate action for the common good. Which is interesting. Anyways, he's going to get more into that I, in chapter three.
1: I would have. Yeah, I was thinking about that. If, if you're in a perfect world or you're in a, a pre-fall world. Um, and you had nations, you had separate distinct nations. There would need to be, in order to commune commune and talk with other nations and, you know, you know, to be a part of a world, you would need to have someone in a sense as a, like a representative. We would need to know what nation that is. We would need to know, okay, here's the nation of Israel, here's the nation of America, here's the nation of Russia, here's these nations, but who is its head? Who's the person, um, who's the representative? Who's yeah. the one that we talk to that that represents that nation, you know, yeah. that speaks for in, on behalf of that nation? Um, yeah. I don't know. So, but would you say that that's the church? You bring all the churches together, and they have a synod. They have, and they elect a a church leader that then is the yeah. representative for the country or nation, whatever it is. I don't know. Yeah, and you know that's. Yeah. It's kind of it's a question like... You have
0: to ask we what, need... it is they're, what is it they're representing, as in what are the talks actually on, right? So I'm representing this mm-hmm. country. Okay, and what conversation? What's the context of the conversation? Oh, well, we would like to trade with you. Oh, cool. Okay. Trade. <laughs> you know, I, I, think, um, mm-hmm. I think that could be done amongst individuals. Right. I think, I don't know. I think we should keep discussing this on a different episode. Maybe spend a discussion topic discussing that. Well, but, but
1: The trading is not on, that but easy. But yeah. It, the the trading is not that easy. It's not like I, the I still pers-
0: think the case could be made for the private sector to handle trading. Right? International trading, I think
1: What if they want larger amounts of resources? Say this nation is known for having a lot of steel or iron. This yeah. nation wants steel. This Who nation has a bunch of Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, who in the end is going to have to handle that? The private sector eventually will have to be the ones to actually handle it after all the paperwork Mm -hmm. is done and after the logistics are worked out, which I think the civil government would in this hypothetical, I would even say from a biblical perspective, that's not even the civil government's job to start out with. Right. Like they shouldn't be the ones who are then who would getting involved in those sorts of things.
1: And I don't I don't disagree but I'm I'm asking who who would stand and fill in that place? Who would write all the paperwork? Who would make sure all this is you know? Who would do all that?
0: Yeah, I to me that seems like whoever the two parties are that are trading, they're two companies. What
1: if there's more than that? Like, I understand we're we're, we're out of time, low <laughs> on time. But if if you want a great amount of steel. And it involves not just one person, but multiple steel workers or multiple steel businesses to work together to trade with these people. And it takes multiple agricultural businesses to start with these people. Now you've got maybe a hundred people, a hundred people that's got to talk to each other about how much they're going to give. And, you know, I think there needs to be a representative between that to make those talks a little bit easier. And maybe that's elected between those people. For I that they, specific they trade, they could and then speak, they could speak to each
0: other. Like, yes, elected heads, sure, but within those companies of because they're two companies, right? So I think the two companies themselves could could handle
1: that. What if it's multiple? Needing. What if it's the nation itself that wants more steel? That you know, or whatever. Who's going to utilize the steel? The companies, but there's multiple. What if there's multiple companies within that that want steel?
0: Then they each handle their own trade. uh dispute. That's true. Might be true. I don't know. All
1: right,
0: but we can continue, from, yeah, we're way out of time. Um, okay. So yeah, anywho, there's a bunch of the chapters get explained. Um, chapter three we're, you look forward to chapter three, um, nation and nationalism chapter four, the Christian nation, one major feature of Christian nationalism, the civil support for true religion. It's going to be interesting. That's chapter four. Chapter five, he defends cultural Christianity, um, which is fascinating. He says that cultural Christianity is a supplemental mode of religion, which means that it supplements the work of spiritual ministry. It's an interesting take. That's chapter five. We'll get into that in a few weeks. Chapter six, he says the emphasis of chapter six is civil law being an explicit ordering of communities. And every civil law reflects a particular judgment of civil rulers for public actions. That's going to be, that's kind of picking up on chapter three in our whole discussion just now, right? So stay tuned for chapter six. Chapter seven investigates the chief end of Christian nationalism, the Christian magistrate. Also a continuation of the conversation we just had. (laughs) This will be this will be very fascinating to to read through some of these. Finally, I'll wrap up page thirty eight. He said, "The work of the Christian nationalist is convincing his Christian nation to be a nation for itself. A Christian nation ought to seek its good, both earthly and heavenly. This book justifies the Christian national will for its good, and it shows uh, how that will properly manifests in natural, social, and civic relations and authorities." I pray that it also cultivates in the reader a love of home and a will for its renewal, end quote. So that's kind of the brunt of the introduction. And I'm going to pass it to Jake to <laughs> – you have six mi- five minutes to <laughs> – you did this to yourself. You, you started the debate, so that's on you.
1: <laughs> oh, boy. This is, this is going to be quick. Good luck. Uh, so Good luck. maybe slow it down to like half speed to understand what I'm saying. Um, (laughs) uh, but first chapter, chapter one, as he gave a brief description of it was very much about, in a sense, he's talking about the three things, the integrity of man, the sin of man and the redemption of man. So through all of this, and, and I think chapter one's focuses specifically on the integrity of man, or also talking about the creation of man and man's order, man's reason for, for living, right? So, you, he starts out with the question, what is man? What is man? Who is man? And so, he, I'll start out with a quote on page 39. Um, he says, How we understand the nature of man determines how we understand human social organization. We observe that some animals are solitary creatures, others are social and communal. Among the latter, we find instinctive rules of cooperation that ensure survival and flourishing. But what works for ants does not work for apes. So, basically, you know, stating that there are... And he gets, he goes on later to talk about that man, man being rational, being a rational creature... Does not would, would make people think that they could be solitary, right? They could be a solitary creature because they can think for themselves they have rationality. However, he says that they're not a solitary creature. They cannot be a solitary creature. We are not hermits. We live within a world and a society as rational human beings that have to um, integrate with other rational human beings. Moving on, um, he also talk, talks about man's job and duties. Um, on page 42, he says, God created Adam with both earthly and heavenly ends. Uh, Bruce mentioned this in when he gave the quote of the brief, brief description. To continue the quote, the latter refers to earth, eternal heavenly life, which God would grant to Adam and his uh, pro- prodigy, progeny, yeah, sorry, uh, upon their meeting a divinely instituted condition. The condition was obedience in manly, man's earthly duties, which involved fulfilling the dominion mandate, multiplying, filling, and, uh, and subduing creation as the vice regents of God on earth. This one I thought was a very interesting quote, especially for that last little bit. That we are multiplying, filling, and subduing creation as vice-regents. We are here on God's behalf to subdue the earth and to control it. To make sure that it's in working order, in good working order. Um, so, and he talks a lot about um, the fact of hierarchy and that chaos is not a good idea. We have to have order. God calls us to order, and that involves having systems in place, having people above other people. Um, And he briefly talks about the moral law, Um, and actually, I thought I would bring this up. This is very interesting, and I think someone could take this out of context or take it weirdly to think he was going against um, or, or speaking for work salvation in a sense, but he explains it very well. Um, he says on page 49, in other words, if you obey the moral law as the rule of life, you meet the condition for eternal life. So, this is exactly the part that I think people would take out of context and say, look, he's saying you must obey the, the moral law in order to receive eternal life, right? In order hmm. to enter the kingdom of heaven. He continues on saying, nevertheless, it is important to maintain the distinction between the moral law as a rule and the moral law as a covenant. If one fulfills the moral law as a covenant on your behalf, the moral law does not thereby cease to, only, to be the only rule, rule of righteousness. That is to say, even if the covenant is fulfilled for you by another, so in a sense he's, he's bringing in here the fact that if the, if the moral law is, is fulfilled by Christ, uh, he continues, the law remains binding to you as the only rule of life. So I take this as, and I don't know if this is the same uh, meaning that you take out of this, Bruce, but how I would take this is that even if, right, even so, Christ did die on the cross fulfilling the law so that we don't, so that we have mercy in the law, it does not mean that the law is no longer is no longer the rule of life, that it is the the only rule, the only grand rule of our and law of the world. So it just because we are we have mercy from the punishments, it doesn't mean that we still don't have to follow the law. The law is still there.
0: Yes. Uh, Yeah, that's really good. It's good observation. And it's good to know where he stands on that, too, as that's probably something that I'm sure would come up as uh, part of this controversial read. Okay. so do you have a final thought, one final quote you want to leave people with that would wrap up this chapter and give them a better idea for what's in it so that when they go back to read it, they know what they're getting themselves into?
1: Yeah, I think one one last one. Uh, On page 68, um, I'm jumping over a bunch there to briefly wrap up all the other things he talked about without giving quotes. He also talked about the human dignity and that dignity is not just it's a word that modern people get wrong. uh, Talking about that dignity refers to something someone's station, not not whatever everybody else thinks. But it refers to a hierarchy. Also, he talked about the natural family, talked about husbands and wives, what that looks like, and that our society is a society of households. Um, but lastly, this is the quote I want to get to on page 68. Um, he says, hierarchy is, therefore, not some, not some post-lapsarian necessity, but neither, it is, but neither is it more morally neutral. It is good in and of itself, even of higher worth than egalitarian arrangements. So, bringing in the fact, and and this is what we were kind of discussing as well, Bruce, the fact of this, this hierarchy, except he doesn't refer it to as the civil government, he's referring to just hierarchy in general. Which I could say, I could see hierarchy within the family is a natural good and needs to stay. But does hierarchy in the civil government need to stay in a post-lapsarian as a post-lapsarian necessity?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great conversation. And I mean, I think obviously the answer is, yeah, we have to have civil government today, right? Like it has to exist. We have to have the hierarchy of um, not it being more important than any of the other governments, right? It's not more important than the family, more important than the church, more important than the individual. It just covers a larger range of people. And so in that way, it is bigger and it has a greater hierarchy. Um, And it does mean that in matters of justice and in matters of true defense and those sorts of things that are biblically outlined, we do submit to the civil government in the ways that it's biblically stipulated. Um, So yeah, that's great. Jake, thank you for your wrap up. Um, That was (laughs) It's phenomenal. You have guys, you have no idea how difficult what he just did was. So <laughs> huge round of applause there. Whew. Summarized that whole chapter in like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, yeah uh, almost 10 minutes. It's crazy. All right. There's so much there. Uh, we hope you all um, got some in- interesting information out of this. We hope it sparks questions. We hope... Um, Hope you go back and study these chapters for yourself. We're moving on to the next chapters next week. So it's going to be chapters two and three. We're going to start studying those tonight. Um, So you better go and uh, start studying with us. we put up the calendar. Again, as a reminder, that's on our social medias. We won't have a discussion topic this Friday. We're skipping every other. So that's also on the calendar on our social medias. So uh, if we can make this any easier for you or uh, any easier to follow what we're doing, let us know. Send us an email, trdshow at prototmail.com. So, uh, check out our show website, trdshow.net. You can follow us there. Uh, those That website has links to Gab, Getter, and then places that hate us, You know, Facebook, Instagram, X, all those places. You can go there as well. Uh, but please follow us on Rumble and um, follow our podcast. Give it a five-star review. And you can just watch all of our content from our website. Like, that's kind of cool, right? So you should do that. Thanks for watching. And we will see you on Monday. So have a great rest of your weekend. <laughs> have a great rest of your week. Have a wonderful Lord's Day. We'll see you on Monday.
1: And remember, everyone, in all that you do, do it as unto the Lord.